Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We have a, a couple of full-time staff, but that's our only overhead. Myself and Norman Sheehan, who co-founded the charity with me, are our volunteers. We're paying all of our own costs, so we've got a effectively got a low-cost, high-impact model, so that anything that's donated to us goes directly to the the people that need it in Ukraine. And I guess that's what I want to scale and what I want to continue to do because it makes the the biggest impact for the least amount of cost. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's 20 months since Ukraine was first attacked by Russian forces in a ruthless war that has shocked Europe and left millions displaced. A massive death toll, horrific injuries and untold trauma has followed for the people of the towns and cities under attack, while a catalogue of war crimes by Russia are being documented. But amidst the chaos, a former Irish rugby star has found a way to help with urgent medical supplies and supports by using his business brain to react to the humanitarian disaster. Today, I'm talking with Shane Leahy about his One for Humanity organisation, which has brought together friends, contacts and big business from Ireland to help a country stunned by war. This is Crime World, a podcast from Sunday World. You're not long back from Ukraine? No, back about 10 days now uh, from the most recent trip. Um, So where did you go this time? uh, This time we were just actually at the warehouse, which is in western Ukraine, uh, quite close to the Slovakian border. So we didn't uh, travel too far in this time. Now there's an Irish connection with that warehouse. Uh, There's a few Irish connections with the warehouse, I guess. Uh, the main connection is that Seamark, uh, which is the biggest cement company in Ukraine, um, uh, is owned by CRH, which is a, uh, a large Irish company, huge Irish global company. And it's through their introductions and, and assistance that we got that warehouse in Ukraine. So it's really helped us. And how long were they out in Ukraine? Um, I believe they've been there for at least decades. 20 years. Yeah, yeah, decades. And again... It was very significant help to us because um, we had uh, drivers and warehouses in place that we could trust uh, yeah. to get our 
um, uh, medical equipment and, and medicines right up to the front lines during the, the heat of the con conflict. So um, they were local drivers that were well-trusted and had been there for years and years. Yeah, and Ukraine is massive. Ukraine is huge. Um, you know, the, you get a sleeper train from Lviv to Kiev, and it's a it's a it's a, a sixteen hour train journey that you, you know, so it's and that's you know that's only halfway across the country. So do they use a lot of trains. Uh, is that still, still a good yeah, kind of method of transport? It is, which is now obviously, but it is, which is, yeah. which is surprising in its own right as well that it's not a, a bigger target for them. But thankfully, it isn't, and they are they are operating. And yeah, uh, because of the distances that are involved. Uh, train travel around is 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 vital, and it is. Uh, so, where do you good. fly into now? Do you still go to Poland and then have to cross the border? It, actually, where I used to go in from is Slovakia, um, right. um, and that's where I would have normally gone in and out. It's, it, it tends to be a little bit quieter than the the Polish border, but I've gone in and out through Poland as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so it, it just depends on on where you're going um, to get to Kiev. Probably the entrance via. Um, uh, Poland is easier because you can get a, a sleeper train right up but it just depends on where you're going To you concentrate know. the minds for people who are listening there's no flights going into Ukraine obviously No, absolutely not There's been a war going on since February 2022 which a lot of us really have forgotten or we sort of I think flick through the pages now we've become used to it Yeah and it is and then it, you know it, it pushes back in its consciousness but it is you know I was in Budapest at the relatively recently and that's only a three-hour drive um from the Ukrainian border so like this is this is not quite the heart of Europe but it's certainly not far from the heart of Europe mm. and there is a uh, uh, a horrific war being waged over there uh, against a, a peaceful people uh, on an ongoing basis so yeah it's it's it, it does drift back and you know other crises pop up what happened in Libya and Morocco, for example, is horrific. Mm. But, you know, this is going on on a daily basis. It doesn't stop. It's it's there. Um, there is attacks taking place now, and there's people dying over there now, um, through no fault of their own. They they didn't ask for this. They didn't want this, and it was just uh, trust upon them. And to go back to the warehouse, because in a way that's where it starts. Because um, I think you were in Ukraine just shortly before the war broke out in February 2022. Um, and you'd obviously some connection with the place. You liked it? You just... Yeah. yeah. Or it was so fresh in your mind, was it, and the people you'd met? Yeah, it was fresh in my mind. Uh, we had an African business and we were talking to a Ukrainian bank uh, about a sale of that business. Mm. Um, so I'd gone over to Ukraine, uh, or to Kiev for the first time, just before the war. Um, Kiev was vibrant. It was a lovely place. They weren't expecting the invasion to happen. Yes, there'd been all the talk about the build-up on the border, um, but they were their their near neighbours, their brothers. They're the same. You know, they would consider them their brothers and sisters. So they, you know, they thought it was saber rattling that there would be some concessions and that this would 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 um, would would calm down again. But little did they they know a couple of weeks later that a full scale invasion was launched. Uh, when the invasion happened, I reached out to a friend of mine, Ray Jordan, this, mm. this, who was the CEO of Gert at the time, to see if I could help. And um, um, I, I ended up uh, very quickly on the Slovakian-Ukrainian border, trying to put infrastructure in place to get aid into Ukraine through them. And, it's, uh, and it took uh, legs from there. Initially, we put a warehouse in place in a place called Mikolodza in 
western Slovakia, close to the Ukrainian border. We brought over supplies from Angarda Shiakana. They came over with a fleet of uh, aid in the early in? days. Was it medical aid they were bringing? Uh, yeah, medical aid um, uh, that they had organized and and uh, the Gardaí came over with it themselves, which was fantastic to see and a great testament to, to the Gardaí and to, yeah. to Ireland itself that they, they drove across Europe with this convoy of aid. And I guess that helped us very significantly in the early days because it proved our model. We had a warehouse in in Western Slovakia. We could then use truck drivers from inside in uh, Ukraine to come out, collect the aid, and then bring it into the far reaches of Ukraine. Um, so in the beginning, there was a lot of generosity. And from here, um, there always is. I think Ireland responds really well to humanitarian crisis. I noticed there, I think it was today or yesterday, that we are the biggest givers to the... Um, what do you call that thing, Clodagh? You know when they oh the GoFundMe, sorry. Yeah. So we're we're some of the bigger biggest givers to GoFundMe, which is a totally unregulated place to earn money. But we tend to be very generous when something's happening. And of course everybody was. There was people collecting, you know, blankets, there was people doing whatever they could initially when it happened. But that has to die off. Mm. You know, and um I'm sure it's sort of it becomes more organised, more political, the giving. And obviously it's the big political donations that really make a difference. But on the ground, do people very soon sort of pull back and feel they've done what they, they've done? You're still there, obviously, but others... Yeah, I think there's still a, a huge amount of generosity towards yeah. Ukraine. And I think that's vital. They are under unprovoked attack. So, and and from my perspective, they are fighting a battle and on all of Europe's behalf from an, a, a Russian aggressor perspective. So uh, there still is, in fairness, significance. This morning, I just met with a, a team from UCD that are going over to train first responders there in terms of um, uh, life-saving um, trauma first mm-hmm. aid, and they're going over to Kiev to train uh, locals on it. So there's there's still a, a huge amount of generosity, particularly coming from Ireland, but it does it does fade from the front pages, and it does fade from the front pages quite quickly. So you would have seen a huge amount of activity um, uh, in the early stages, and that does die away. But, but there's still a steady stream of people that are trying to help out over there, which is great to see. And the bigger picture, I suppose, is trying to put in place almost a business model, which you have done in order to get the most amount of aid in, in the most efficient way and to the right places. So you sort of have applied your own business mind to this humanitarian um, effort to get the, the medical supplies. And you're also putting in basically sort of mobile operating theatres. Is that what they are? Uh, yes, they are. We've put in uh, 15 um, um, clinics in a can, which are effectively operating theatres within a 20-foot container, which contain all of the equipment necessary to deal with a full trauma. Everything from uh, defibrillators to x-ray equipment to uh, you know the, a full operating theatre as such. So we've moved in 15 of them, which um, have acted as triage centres on the front line or to as backup or replacements for hospitals that have been uh, shelled or bombed or destroyed by the Russians. So, and they've come in from the states, from another, a separate charity organisation that have sort of partnered with you in, in the use of the warehousing and the the transport system to get them because of the infrastructure that we've yeah. been able to put in place and 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 proving the model with Angarda Shiakana. As I said, we were able to take in a charity called Heart to Heart from the US. We we brought them into Ukraine. We showed them around. We introduced them to some of the local administrators. We showed them our warehouses, our infrastructure. And because of that, then they trusted us with the delivery of a significant amount of uh, uh, pharmaceutical supplies. Initially through Goethe, there was about 40 million that was delivered. And now through One for Humanity, 
we've we've about uh, we've we've delivered about five point one million and another three point one million on the way. So we were able to scale it, and as you said, we have set it up as a as a, as a business as a as low cost as possible. We've piggybacked our infrastructure on, uh, you know, we're using uh, warehouses that are, don't belong to us over there, and we're mm. using infrastructure that doesn't belong to us. We have a a couple of full time staff, but that's our only overhead. Myself and Norman Sheehan, who co-founded the charity with me, are our volunteers. We're paying all of our own costs. So we've got a effectively got a low-cost, high-impact model so that anything that's donated to us goes directly to the, the people that need it in Ukraine. And I guess that's what what uh, what I want to scale and what I want to continue to do because it makes the, the biggest impact for the least amount of cost. It seems to have sort of happened almost very quickly in your mind how you went from kind of offering your help which was physical help, really, you were doing. Initially, you were saying, okay, you had this warehouse and you could help move the stuff. But how did you sort of flip that into a business or, well, not a business, we'll call it, um, you know, a charitable organization so quickly? I guess that's the entrepreneurial part of me. You look mm. at, and I suppose I've been involved in business for a number of years. Um, so you look to scale a business opportunity. And again, this is this obviously isn't a business opportunity. It's a humanitarian organization, but I look to scale it as, as quickly. So how do you scale this as quickly as mm. possible? And how you scale it is is by using existing infrastructure, by using existing contacts and keeping the costs, as I was saying, as low as possible. So yes, I suppose you, you get ambitious in terms of of how you approach the task. And, and you know, it's been very satisfying to be able to, to, to be able to see that. And then the people on the ground are just so appreciative of what you're doing. The more you do, the more you want to do. And, you know, it just pulls you in. And, you know, I've heard of, you know, um, international, uh, you know, people coming back from Ukraine, you know, they, they could have helped out in the front lines, they could have been injured, but they immediately want to go back and help because mm. they've, they, 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 you just get sucked into it and, and trying to assist and, you know, the feel good of, of helping out is, is. And no doubt that's because of what you see and, you know, some things that you see won't leave you in situations like that. When you were there first and you went back having been there as a business person talking to a bank, everything is just so normal, modern society. And you go back in and all of a sudden Ukraine is dragged back to the dark ages, what feels like the dark ages of a war. Um, what sort of things affected you that you saw? It's little things. It was, and it was, yeah, com- completely chaos and may- mayhem when I went back the second time. Obviously, there was millions of people literally streaming across the borders and trying to get out of Ukraine. Mm. I guess the you know, the simple things, um, the, the the families breaking up at the at the border was the hardest thing, and it's still the one that sticks to me most. Typically, the men can't leave Ukraine. Anybody of fighting age over eighteen and under sixty have to remain in Ukraine. So they were accompanying their wives and children to the border, and you typically have you know two kids literally holding on to their fathers for dear life and the father was having to pull them off them and head back to to uh, fight. To, to fight or yeah. or to complete uncertainty so it was just horrific to see it um and that's you know that wasn't just once twice ten hundreds thousands it was you know hundreds on a daily basis uh, for a long time so it's it's families being ripped apart and communities being ripped apart and people who weren't artists. soldiers i mean these were not soldiers these were people who, from all sorts of different professions and yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, Violence and war is a strange thing to them. Yeah, absolutely. And and some of the nicest people, and particularly early days in the war, we had a food station on the Ukrainian side of the border. You'd sit down with these guys, give them a cup of coffee or a bowl of soup while they were crossing. And when they were with their wives and their children, these are lovely people. Mm. Uh, an hour later, when their wives and children are gone, these guys are, they're transformed in that hour to, you know, why us and why, you know, this aggression, why did it, mm. why did it come down on us? And it transforms them. Mm. that they've got to fight for um, and I was just about to say fight for their country they're not fighting for their country they're not fighting for Ukraine they're fighting for their wives their mothers their sisters mm. you hear and see the atrocities that have been committed by the Russian troops or you know, Russian prisoners in a lot of cases the Wagner group emptied the prisons and emptied those prisoners into Ukraine to do their damnedest and they did do their damnedest and if you think the Ukrainians are fighting for their country they're not they're fighting because of what's happened to their wives their children their daughters their brothers their sisters so you know they are going to fight. Um, and they will fight until they, you know, there's no end in sight at the moment for the looks of things. I mean, it seems to be at a deadlock, is it? Yeah, it, it appears to be. It, yeah. It's ground, you know, I have to say from what I've seen in Ukraine, it has been transformed since since the start of the war when we went in first. You know, the health service was requisitioned by the army to fight the war. Mm. Uh, all of the able-bodied men were being called up. So that left a lot of deficits in terms of infrastructure over there. But now that's been completely transformed. The country is back as a functioning uh, a, a functioning country. You know, we I was in Kiev, the bars, restaurants, nightclubs, they're all open and, and operating. Uh, Odessa, uh, we were there. Uh, um, uh, about a month ago, and again, you know, the, the restaurants. It's a beautiful city, and it's operating as a as a uh, as a vibrant city again. Uh, I just spoke just before coming in here. I just spoke to my contact uh, Vadim in Odessa, and he was saying the sun is shining. It's beautiful weather. Everybody's back swimming in the Black Sea. They're back which swimming. Is, so have is, they yes. have they tried to because they kind of closed down that whole idea that that is such a seaside city, um, a harbor that hasn't been in use. And there was a time that people couldn't get into the water because they were afraid of the mines that had been left. Yeah, behind. it wasn't that they closed it down; it was that it, that it had to have been closed because of the the, the dam that was um, uh, bombed by the Russians that mm. swept a lot of mines, um, animals' bodies into the Black Sea. And because of the mines, they had to they had to take their time in clearing that. So uh, while we were there. Uh, a month ago, they were, you know, they were, they were, the seafront was vibrant and the weather was beautiful, but they, there was nobody in swimming. But thankfully, as I was saying, I just spoke to Vadim and they're saying the sun is shining and they're back right. swimming. So it's, it's, it's sort of surreal. Resilience of humanity as well, isn't it? All everywhere around you. Absolutely. You have to get on with it in terms of they're, they're now faced with this for, for what, well over a year and a half at this point. Yeah. Uh, and there's no end in sight, as you said, it seems to have. Been... Can you see the Russian warships out on the horizon? Are they that, are they much further away than that? No, they would be yeah. further away from that. But, but from Odessa, you can see the occupied uh, areas. Um, uh, and, you know, you go slightly further east and you're into Harsan and one side of Harsan is Russian controlled or one yeah. uh, across the bridge across the river is Russian controlled and then the the uh, western side is Ukrainian controlled and they're 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 constantly uh, firing backwards and forwards over that so it's a and Odessa would have been it's modern obviously but it would have been a place where you could sit and watch the cruisers were pulling in and there was there must have been ships dotted out there yeah yachts and Everything that you see, yeah, I, 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 unfortunately, I wasn't there before the war. But even but even now during the war, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful city. It reminds me of Vienna. It's uh, it's 
It's got a you know lovely architecture. The you know the the parks, the seafront. You know it's it's a modern, um, bustling uh, coastal town with you know with with a great history. Um, and and you know that's still that's starting to reemerge mm. in in what is a completely surreal. Uh, circumstances and again you get lulled into a sort of a false sense of security while we were there we went and we went to see some of the um the 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 buildings the cathedral for example and that cathedral was bombed the following week um so you know you 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 think you're miles away from it but it can change very very quickly over there unfortunately so as regards medical because you have people i mean the the americans think 500,000 people have been killed the ukrainians and 500 thousand people killed and injured the ukrainians would suggest more like a hundred thousand what does it matter there's a huge amount of people that have been killed and injured and the injuries must be horrific i mean you're talking about injuries from mines uh from rocket grenades all sorts of stuff so they initially the military took over the hospitals right and they had to do that and then they sort of moved these frontline sort of mobile units almost to um, to deal with the, I suppose, the frontline soldiers who were in the absolute firing lines. But behind that, you have people, citizens living normal lives who still need normal medical uh, care. And you obviously have the more minor injuries that that don't need that frontline care. So how are they operating? How are they coping with that? I mean, how have they got enough doctors, enough surgeons? Um, I mean, our own hospital system here is in such a mess and so strange that we can't cope and we're not dealing with a war. Mm. So I guess the short answer is that they don't. There is there is deficits in terms of care that they can provide. Um, in Kherson, for example, that was occupied by the Russians for a, uh, a significant period of time and there was no cancer treatment um, mm. uh, continued during that time. So they have a build-up of, of issues like that. Um, as you said, a lot of the the, the medical system has been requisitioned by the army um, and they're trying to backfill that as quickly as they can. But that's, you know, that takes time and it takes uh, it takes resources. So, you know, there is significant deficits. Uh, our most recent distribution of medical aid in Ukraine has been in the west of the country um, simply because there's uh, a significant uh, internally displaced population that have had to move from the east over to the west, and the health system is um, is creaking at the seams as it as it is. Uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, I know UCD are involved in in trying to support um, uh, the uh, medical system in Odessa in terms of trying to provide some uh, training, specialist training for uh, injuries, and also trying to to assist in terms of uh, education of the next. Um, um, set of students that are coming through because you know the the, the they're most likely being rushed through. I'm sure are they the system to try and get more and more doctors or anybody who can it's, nursing as well. I think I, I think you need to, to 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 they need to go through their their mm. time there. But I think that the the problem is that the trainers are being taken away and they're yeah. being moved to the front line. So I think that leaves a deficit of trainers that are left behind. So hopefully, uh, Western and those injuries, Shane. I mean, must be. I mean. They require a huge amount of each injury, like must require a huge amount of medical assistance. It's not just patch somebody off, up and out they go. 
I mean, these are long-term care plans that need to be put in place for people. Yeah, and it's it's it's. I guess it's just coping at this moment in time. But they're you know, but the amount of loss of of limbs is is huge in Ukraine, unfortunately. And that's as you said, that's not something you can stick a bandaid on. It's something that requires retraining. But that's going to take years, decades to try and work through. Mm. Um, Also, the psychological impact of of being in a war over there is going to take decades to. To, to fix even if the war stops tomorrow. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any signs of the war stopping tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would hope, and, and you know, there is, there's a lot of positives too. There is, there is a lot of goodwill. There's a lot of people um, trying to help, but they require that and so much more. So did you sort of ever find yourself, had you ever kind of gone into any of these conflict zones before this, or this was just landed on you and you've obviously managed to, um, bring your business mind to it and create something that is being a huge help to people in medical need. And we have, we'll go through some of the medications that you're sending out because there's an interesting list of stuff there. But, um, which I suppose shows the needs, which aren't just kind of emergency, are they? They're the sort of long-term cancer needs and everything else that's going on in the population. But like, were you completely shocked by what you'd seen or had you been to sort of places of... Uh, conflict before? Not necessarily of conflict, but we had taken 20 staff to Haiti to work in Haiti yeah. a number of years ago as, as part of a, you know, giving back through our, through the company business. We went out to Haiti with 20 staff worldwide to work on a farm there. That's and the Oxygen 8 group you're talking about. Yeah, we took uh, two staff from each of different offices, 10 different offices, and went and worked on a, on a, on a farm in Haiti uh, for Soul of Haiti, another Irish charity, a number of years ago. And that was eye-opening. Uh, Haiti has quite a scary place uh, in terms of uh, the poverty levels there, the violence levels there and things. So that was that was certainly eye-opening. I have spent a bit of time in Africa as well, mm. some, um, uh, some beautiful countries, but also some less than beautiful countries in Africa. So I would have had some experience from that. But yeah, you know, for this, for Ukraine to be right on our doorstep, um, to mm. be, you know, to be the centre of Europe, not quite the centre of Europe, as I was saying, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a two and a half hour flight from Dublin to to there, so it's not it's 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 not. It remote. sounds to me though you didn't have much time to think about it. You just you 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 happened to be have been there. You offered help, and all of a sudden saw an opportunity to really properly help, because I mean this is millions we're talking that you have managed to filter through into the health system there. Yeah, and again, that it was never designed and never set mm. out to, to, to go that way, but you just, you, you go and you, you try and help in whatever way you can. And luckily enough, we had true business contacts and some rugby contacts we got involved with, CRHC Mark, and were able to scale it quite quickly and then able to work with I American love to scale it. I must start using this in my, <laughs> I must start doing some of that actually. It's, it's probably <laughs> one of my business uh, uh, words that my kids yeah. would give out to me for so We could all do with scaling it, I can tell you. We could all. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's 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 literally trying to help. And even at the start, as I was saying, we were there trying to give out soup and coffee on the Ukrainian side of the border, and and was very happy doing that because you you get a, such a feel good of trying to help them individually on the ground. So you know that to me is no different than than what we did elsewhere. It was just that we were able to do it because of the circumstances that we were presented with. Mm. Um, and you know the, the Americans, in fairness to them, have shown huge support. Um, uh, over in Ukraine and and working with Heart to Heart International has been an absolute godsend from our side. So how did you get an introduction to them? Was that through Norman Sheehan? And maybe we'll just 
go through a bit of his background. He's a risk management specialist. He's from Cork, yeah? Yeah, uh, Norman is from Cork and, yeah. and a lifelong humanitarian. We'll forgive him for that bit. <laughs> you're from Limerick now, so you're not much far, further off. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can forgive him from being from Cork, but uh, we do have a constant banter backwards and forwards between the two of us. But uh, yeah, he's a lifelong humanitarian. He's got some stories. He's been in Mogadishu. He's been in... Uh, some of the the scariest spots at the scariest times around the world and has dedicated his life towards mm-hmm. humanitarian efforts. He was the operations director of of Goal. He's been involved in humanitarian organizations all of his life. Um, he How also, did you guys meet then? Uh, through, uh, through Goethe. Uh, he Ray reached, Gordon. Yeah, yeah, to Ray Jordan. Jordan. Um, yeah, uh, he reached out to Ray and uh, he had been doing some work with the charity Heart to Heart in the US and he made the introductions and flew over with um, the executives from Heart to Heart and, and travelled around Ukraine and, and saw then what we had put in place and what we had put in place in a short period of time in a war zone was, mm. you know, it, it was enabled us to deliver um the medicines, you know, which was uh, obviously with the lack of infrastructure at the time was uh, was a big positive. So Heart to Heart, our, our big American charity, did they raise funds through corporately or? They, they would raise funds through corporately. They would raise funds through church organizations. They're a, they're a broad-based yeah. um, uh, organization. So a lot of the medicines that, that we would uh, distribute in Ukraine are coming from um, some of the largest pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Teva, mm-hmm. for example, would have uh, 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 agreements with Heart to Heart where they donate medicines. And those medicines are then, uh, we would um, effectively take orders from uh, hospitals in Ukraine and try and match up those orders with uh, the medicines that are available in Heart to Heart. Again, we're not getting... And are they transporting them from the States or are yeah. they sourcing them? Like, are any of the medicines coming from here? Uh, no, none no. of them are coming from here. They're all being transported. And shipped. And shipped uh, into Vienna, flown into Vienna, and then we trucked them from Vienna into Ukraine and then using our infrastructure in Ukraine, delivered them out around Ukraine. Um, we, the hospitals would have actually, the hospital units would have actually come from uh, the US, but we're now working on a, a European solution. So we're hoping to deliver more hospital units that are sourced from um, Europe, uh, mm-hmm. specifically from Amsterdam, so that they're they're closer, um, so that we can literally just drive them in. Not so expensive, obviously, to transport them. Not I mean, so expensive. Something like that, and, yeah. and you don't have the, the you know, obviously, when you're talking about big hospital units, they can't be flown. They've got to be brought yeah. on ships. So it just mm-hmm. there's a, a significant time lag. So there's a cost and time lag mm-hmm. associated with that. So what sort of medicines are they sending and do you send an order or do they basically send you what they have? I'm sure it's a lot more organised than that. It's, it's, we try to marry it up, I guess. So yeah. we, we would, we would visit and we visited quite a few frontline hospitals in Ukraine Yeah, and they uh, would tell us what they need. And then we try to marry that up with what's available. We don't, we don't provide everything that we would like to, to the, to the hospitals simply because we don't have that stock, but we have provided anything from HIV meds, um, anxiety drugs, blood pressure meds, antidepressants, yeah. uh, heart, heart medicines. So we would speak to the, to, to the hospitals, see what they require and then try to match that up with what's available. Mm-hmm. I would love to be in a position where we're providing everything to them, but unfortunately we're not in that position at the moment. And I would like to work with other uh, Irish based pharmaceutical companies that, that could 
hopefully fill some of those gaps. And obviously in Ireland, we do have a huge number of international pharmaceutical companies and I would love to try and, uh, and work with them to, to fill more of the needs uh, over there. And again, you know, in certain instances, these are, um, and some of the medicines that we would provide would be, you know, 18 months uh, expiry date. So they're not medicines that can be readily sold by these pharmaceutical right. companies. So we can get them over there, get them in place very quickly and uh, uh, add significant value back. So is the normal sort of uh, import or whatever you would call it of the medicines completely stopped? And are they just wholly reliant on uh charities like your own to bring them in or is there some sort of normal business going on within the hospitals? No, there is normal business is. going on. And so it's no, just, just an extra need. Uh, it's an extra need and obviously um, there is uh, there's martial law in Ukraine so the, the front line and the troops are taking priority yeah. over, over what's there at the moment. They are filling in the gaps behind that as best they possibly can. Mm. But you can imagine there's, there's such needs across the, the whole country um, that um, you know, it's they are they need as much as they can get as such in relation to it. Yeah. And then obviously you have a far higher requirement for um, um, antidepressants um, and anxiety pills, anxiety pills, and, yeah. you know, and, and and everything. And and you know, and even as I said on the the western side of the the country, you know, it's got twice the population that it had pre-war. It probably didn't have adequate. Uh, uh, medical infrastructure there prior to that, and then it's been removed by the army. So you've got a uh, a huge amount of additional population with a diminished amount of capability to deliver uh, medical treatment. So it, they need as much as they can get. And like, how do people that you've spoken to on the ground, the Ukrainians, how do they feel about the Russians? Is there a hatred there, or are they sort of numb to that because they're trying to survive? Um, they're yeah. A mixture of both is the honest answer. It's funny, when I went to Ukraine before the war, uh, Russian was the language that they did business in. Mm. Um, and a, a significant portion of the population would have only have spoken Russian. But now everybody is trying to speak Ukrainian. They don't want to speak um, uh, Russian. Um, um, you know, as an example, uh, uh, Kiev is the is the Ukrainian pronunciation of the capital. And if you say Kiev now, mm. you are quickly uh, corrected. Oh, Kiev. Um, uh, Odessa. Better make sure I don't say that. Uh, Odessa is spelled with one S in Ukrainian, but two S's in Russian. So you spell it with two S's now, you'll be quickly corrected on it. And it's just, you know, it, these are their near neighbors. These are their, you know, their brethren. These are, you know, it's like our relationship with the UK. I mean, mm. you know, they can't understand how that they have or why that they're committing such atrocities against them. These are their brothers, their sisters. Everybody knows or has relatives that are uh, mm. that are in Russia. You know, it's, it's, this is the you know they're close neighbors, so it's, it's it's barbaric what's going on. And what about some of those? I mean, Russia has been accused of war crimes. Um, I know that certainly they've been accused of um, mistreating some of the prisoners of war, but also, as we were talking before you come on, they have targeted hospitals was one of the first things they targeted. They've targeted coffee shops. They've targeted places where are purely civilian. Yeah. Yeah. Indiscriminate attacks on, on civilian infrastructure is a war crime. And it's clear that they have done that since day one in the war. Mm. Um, the medical infrastructure has been hit hard from day one. Uh, I've been to uh, uh, tens 
if not hundreds of hospital and medical facilities that have been attacked. Uh, they're not stray bombs. They have been deliberately targeted, uh, which is a war crime. And the systematic targeting of um, civilian infrastructure is a crime against humanity. And there's no doubt in my mind mm. that the Russians are guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. It's widespread, widespread mm. right across the country. It's not a... It's not a, a a loose bomb or anything like that. These have been deliberately targeted, and they've deliberately targeted the um, the power infrastructure as well to make life as tough as they possibly can for the everyday Ukrainians, so that they would leave Ukraine and mm. put pressure on the EU. By uh, it's hard by to believe to sort of comprehend really how so many people can involve themselves in that kind of, you know, from a Russian point of view. Okay, soldiers. I know soldiers are they're following orders, etc. But where is their humanity? Well, I, again, and I mentioned it, I think, at the start, is the first thing that the Russians did was empty their prisons of murderers, rapists, mm. and sent them as soldiers to Ukraine. They're not soldiers. They're not They're not men of honor in terms of um, following a profession. They are criminals that were just unleashed as onto a... I'm sure there's some horrendous stories, is there? Horrific. Yeah. Horrific. Yeah. And they went into villages and... Um, they went into villages. Um, I, I, you know, we met uh, girls coming out that had swapped friends for safe passage. How do you leave a friend behind? How do you swap a friend for... Are these rural villages? Or? Uh, that one, um, that was Mariupol that those girls were coming from. So that, that's a big city, a big cosmopolitan city. Right. But, you know, uh, you know, how quickly it deteriorates. Um, um, Irpin and, and Bucha, which are would be the equivalent of Black Rock and Dalky in Dublin, and that close to to Kiev, they were occupied. And some of the stories that have coming from there is just absolutely horrific. Mm. Um, um, you know, the mass graves in Izium. I, I, I visited that the, the trip before last. You know, so what's going on over there was is just butchery and barbaric. But again, um, yeah, I, I'm not questioning uh, any of the, the 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 normal Russians. I don't believe that they want mm. this war. I believe that there is a um, a mafia don that's running a uh, a criminal organization at the top of it, and I, I don't know how else to say it. But that's what's happening. And 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 if you if you don't uh, toe the party line, you're thrown out of a window, and your or your your jet is shot down, or or whatever. So yeah. you know, it's a brutal totalitarian regime which is uh, inflicting atrocities on a, uh, on, on a on a near neighbor and country. You know, and like Ukraine always have. You know, their narrative has always been it could be anybody like we are. You know, it's it's Ukraine they've targeted. But you can see certainly Finland mm. um, also on the border with Russia is obviously always had a big military because it was mm. on the border with Russia. Um, but you can see that you, or you can feel the nerves there that, you know, I've, I've no doubt. Sense. I've no doubt in my mind that Ukraine was just merely a, the first stopping point. Um, mm. The Russians already have troops stationed in Moldova and are claiming a, an area of Moldova as their own. Um, had the uh, had their attack of Ukraine succeeded, they, I have no doubt that they would have linked up with Moldova, which is uh, which is connected to it. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, they've already threatened Lithuania in terms of a, a land bridge into Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave in 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 northern Europe. 
Um, so, yeah, I, you know, had they, they got away with the invasion of, of Crimea. They got away with attacking areas of Donetsk and uh, Luhansk um, a number of years ago and, and were just building up again. So mm. I think had Ukraine uh, fallen as had quickly they, yeah, as they exactly. expected, they would have continued. Had they not now. fought as hard as they did and continued to do so? Absolutely. Where could we be now? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a part of the reason why uh, I'm involved in it, you know, I've, I've two sons in their early 20s. And if we didn't take action against this, it would be up to them to, mm. to is, is sort of how my mind uh, went in relation to that. So it's, it's you know, this is a this is a war against Europe. Um, is there still a positive feeling on the ground then you talk about the cities are kind of coming back to life? They are back to life. They seem to be very resilient in how they can get their infrastructure back there. People are resilient. You see them in war zones uh, all the time. First ones back out are usually the guys with the coffee trucks, yeah. you know, and they get them up and running no matter what. And people all of a sudden start behaving normally. Um, and there's a healing to that, I think. But um, they seem to be a particularly resilient population. They are. They're, they're, they're incredibly resilient. As I said, the infrastructure is back up. It's been um, repaired all the way along in Kiev. Kiev, should I say, correcting yeah, myself. You'd be uh, down as Russian, then you'd be chucked out. <laughs> uh, uh, in Kiev, you'd be hard pressed to find a damaged building. They're they're repairing yeah. them as they go along. Um, you know, they're building new roads. You know, up to a couple of meters um, or a couple of kilometers from the front line. The farmers are planting up to a couple of kilometers of the front line. There is a resilience in them. There is a weariness, definitely there as well that you can see. But there's also hope and I did mention earlier about the, the breakup of family and I you know one of the happiest things that I saw on one of the last trips that I was there was a family being reunited I was on a, mm. a bus in through Ukraine and I saw a father coming off and, and embracing his um, um, wife and children that he hadn't obviously seen for a while so it's nice to see that there's you know th- there, there is people returning and there is mm-hmm. uh, you know and from um, a European perspective, we've got to try and facilitate that. We do, and we have to keep it in mind that those who are here are here for shelter, and most of them probably do want to go home and don't particularly want to be here at all. Absolutely. Um, and we have to remember that, and also do what we can as a country, as a rich country, as you say, particularly the pharmaceutical industry here. Is there any of them that have excess medicines that will be just pass or sell by date? for here or, and wherever else they can export to, but they would be welcome um, in a country in need. And I presume also there's other businesses that uh, operate here that, yeah. do, we, do we have bandages? Do we have things like we probably do? Yeah, tourniquets is actually a big one. Mm. And it's 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 a, it's a funny one. I find myself getting an education on tourniquets now, which is something I never thought. Um, there's... Um, uh, do Irish hospitals run out? You know, I mean, do we have to very much watch the the, the sell by on everything? I mean, have they got excess? I think on something like tourniquets or other th- or other stuff like that is mm. it's you know there isn't a huge requirement, thankfully, for that in in our country at the moment. So that's yeah. maybe something uh, a simple one. Um, uh, but yes, it, anything that we can do to support uh, is required. So from medical supplies is the is the area that we focused on because that's where we felt we could make most of a different or most difference mm. but there is you know there's other significant requirements in terms of and not food food never was the requirement was it because ukraine has such a massive food industry yeah in the early days food yeah. I, I think was a requirement was it, because yeah. the, the whole infrastructure had broken down yeah. the whole um uh, supply chain had broken down but now no um you know the, the ukraine is such a known as the breadbasket of europe and you can see it traveling around 
they've got beautiful sunshine and uh, and rain, so they've got mm. perfect growing conditions. And you know, it's 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 a, a, a you know, and it's 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 actually an issue in Africa now because the, the grain and other foodstuffs that they would have supplied to uh, third world countries is now. Uh, not coming out, so there was this, uh, it stopped. Is it is it back running again or uh, not? To well, well, th- there was a grain deal with Russia which facilitated. So Vladimir exposures. Putin can say whether or not Africa gets fed exactly, and and does, and and uh, because of their petrochemical industry, can also decide whether they have farmer they have uh, fertilizer or not. And if you support or if you don't speak out against Russia, you'll get fertilizer. If you do speak out against Russia, your fertilizer is cut off. So this, yes, you'd have to wonder like about the world what how do we end up like this yeah you know, how the hell do we end up um you know under with one individual i suppose and those under him like dictating so much yeah i guess from what i've seen you see the best and the worst of humanity uh you see the worst of humanity and what's happening in terms of the the attacks and and what uh, atrocities are being orchestrated, but you see the best of people uh, also going in and trying to help and putting themselves in harm's way to mm. try and uh, to to help other people. Uh, we're operating mainly in the in the western side of the country, which is a which is a relatively safe. But you've got NGOs that are right up to the front lines, and you have aid workers being killed on an ongoing basis. People that, and we work with a number of medical charities over there that are right working right up, including an organisation called Step In, which are you know late. 20s, early 30s of medical professionals who are giving their time and energy to helping over here where they could be earning the big bucks elsewhere. But there, so you see the best and worst of humanity. But yes, there is a, there is a, you know, you despair sometimes in seeing what's going on and uh, uh, over there. You know, when you get these successful businesses up and running, right? <laughs> Do they just run themselves then? Does it all just flow really neatly and you can just stand back and no, no. <laughs> never. Unfortunately, Sorry. it doesn't work like that. Uh, and actually, um, we, we've set up successful business in markets and we've been unfortunately subject to, to frauds and those. So you, you've got to, like anything else, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to put your time and effort uh, and continually building it and continually growing it. We've been lucky as a business in that we've got some fantastic management teams in place and they've, uh, they, mm. they've gotten rid of me. So they're running the businesses themselves, but that's because they've been taken on by other people um, and hence why I've got a little bit more free time to go into other things Um, as many things that sound too good to be true are myths but anyway um, what about I suppose finally this you know this blueprint that you've created in the Ukraine could it be sort of transported elsewhere to other parts of the world that you've uh, yes, and, and 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 I'm certainly looking at that for 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 different um, for different areas. Uh, so, for example, Kenmare Resources would be an Irish company which is based out of Mozambique. They have warehouses, trucks, ships. Uh, and facilities in Mozambique um, and I've had initial conversations with them about working with them to bring aid into northern Mozambique which has uh, a troubled history and a troubled present unfortunately um, so th- th- there's examples of that those discussions are at early stages uh, we've got focus on Ukraine at the moment um, but it, it is something that we, we feel we've got a very low cost uh, volunteer driven organisation which enables the aid to get uh, to the end user in a very, very cost-efficient, uh, cost-effective way 
using existing infrastructure. So if we could replicate that in other areas. Would you like to be just doing it full time? <laughs> I, I, I would, Better but unfortunately. You have a thing called a job. Yes. Um, and I never this. asked you about the rugby, for goodness sake. Everybody's listening here. Totally forgot about this little aspect of your life. Um, the rugby. Who's going to win, by the way? <laughs> Uh, the, the the excitement is building in terms of Ireland. They look yeah. like a, a complete outfit at the moment. Yeah. And, and there's such strength and depth. If you look at uh, the first 15 are, are incredibly strong, but the next 15 that are coming behind them in terms of replacements are also incredibly strong. So you can't but get excited about this World Cup. And they seem to be, you know, going about it in the right way. Um, Are you still involved in it? No, not at all. No. Uh, not at all. Um, spectating. Yeah. Uh, having a, a beer and watching it and shouting on from the sidelines. Did you miss it? Uh, you, you would once you're once you, I, I would have played a lot. I played professionally for a few years, so you get you know it, it, it seeps into your blood as well. So yeah. when you step away from that initially, there's a huge gap in your life, and you, you try and fill it with other different things. And um, well, you've certainly been successful at that. <laughs> so do you old timers kind of get together then and have your beers and? <laughs> Not as much as I'd like to, but yes, we do. <laughs> you should have said to me, I'm not a goddamn old timer. <laughs> oh. Look, Shane Leahy, thank you very much. Nicola, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here, and thank you very much for having me on to talk. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.